Our only hope is you, Jesus, and I pray that you would be with us today and help us to uh, understand and discern what you have said in your word and to delight in you more and to learn about what it truly means, truly means what you said to Peter. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Um, have you ever heard of St. Peter's pearly gates? You know, the ones that he holds the keys to in heaven, and when you get up there, it's kind of like a checkout booth, where you, but it's, it's checking in, and so you, you got to kind of... Uh, find out if you're in or not, and if you're not in it, then all of a sudden a trap door opens in heaven, and you, you had this nice glimpse, uh, but then you fell. You fall straight to hell, or in, in, in some versions, purgatory. Or have you ever heard that Peter is the rock on which Christ chose to build his church? Perhaps, perhaps based on how faithful and wonderful Jesus, or Peter was when he responded to Jesus? Well, both of those things that I just mentioned are actually derived from the text we're going to be reading today. However, both of them are false. Neither is true. St. Peter does not have pearly gates. He does not hold keys that he's going to sit there jingle jangling and, and tell you defend yourself well enough to, uh, to go into heaven. Uh, also, Peter is not the rock. So, uh, today we're going to be going through Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. And uh, I'm going to apologize ahead of time. This is going to be one of the more grammatically technical sermons that I've done so far. The, the, the grammar and the technicalities are necessary to really understand what's being said. Um, so I'm not going to apologize that you have to put up with it. I'm just going to apologize that I have to do it. That makes sense, right? It's better, better to ask forgiveness than permission. So, uh, so I, I'm going to challenge you to stay awake, to pay attention, uh, and to buckle up, because this is, this is going to be a bumpy ride, but it's going to be a bumpy ride full of gospel truth. So, Matthew, thir uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. 
So let's just walk through these verses a little bit, shall we? Uh, if we were to turn to Mark 8, verses 27 to 29, or Luke 9, verses 18 to 20, we would read this exact same account from different perspectives, and they actually would not cover as much detail. So this, this account with these words about, uh, about having... Uh, Having, having the keys to heaven, uh, the, the binding and the loosing, this setup only really exists in, Ma exists in Matthew's gospel. Um, also, if you were to read Mark and Luke, you'd find that they kind of differ on where Jesus and the disciples are when this happens. Uh, in in the, the Mark account, it's, he's in a village. Um, and then in the Luke account, he's praying alone with the disciples. But Matthew solves the problem for, for both of them, and he just says, now when he came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and it kind of makes you wonder if he's the one trying to solve and settle the debate between the two of them. You, you, ever, you ever be in that situation where like, you know, two kids are like, no, this is mine, no, this is mine, you come in, you're like, no, it's mine, and you walk away? I kind of feel like that's what he's like, but that's not actually true, Luke was written later. Uh, anyway, um, Matthew also, uh, provides greater contents of the conversation, like I said. And this is important later in, in the sermon, uh, predominantly because we don't have anything else to compare this conversation to. Usually you have like Peter, right? Peter wrote epistles, uh, the letters, the extra letters. And so he wrote these epistles and we can look at this, this uh, well, it's called Petrine theology, but we can look at the theology of Peter in his epistles and compare it with like Mark, where Mark was actually written, the gospel of Mark was written by uh, the assistant of Peter. So we don't have an assistant of Matthew we don't have a way to clarify some of the verbiage in here. We just kind of have history. So uh, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And, and ultimately, the crowds, everyone else, doesn't get it, right? They say, they say that he could be a prophet, right? Maybe he's John the Baptist resurrected. Maybe he's, he's Elijah returned. Because remember, Elijah didn't die. He got sucked up in a whirlwind. So maybe it's Elijah. Maybe Jesus is Elijah. And some think he's actually of, of a line of prophets, uh, Jeremiah specifically. Jeremiah was the lamenting prophet, the, the prophet of woes, and not like woe, but woe, like the bad kind. So, there, so people are saying maybe he's you know, of the line of Jeremiah. Uh, elsewhere, you also read that people thought Jesus was the promised king, but they misunderstood what that meant. They thought Jesus was going to be an earthly king, which would be John 6.15. Uh, other, other people thought he was a great healer, and that's, that's what Jesus was. Like, he was basically a priest. Um, if you were to read Leviticus 14 and 15, you read about how the priests had to evaluate various diseases, come up with cures. Uh, they'd have to evaluate different discharges from your body to see what makes you clean and unclean. It's kind of a gross job. I'm really glad I'm not a Levitical priest. But... But the, the, the irony is that Jesus is a prophet, and he is a priest, and he is a king. So all these people knew something about Jesus, but they didn't really understand the whole scope of Jesus. And I want to kind of make a point here that, that knowing 
kind of who Jesus is is no substitute for actually knowing who Jesus is. People, people who are close are not actually there. I had a buddy in high school who used to, who used to say, uh, almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It, does, it, it doesn't count in theology. It doesn't, it doesn't count in knowing who Jesus is specifically. You have to be right on the mark. So he's not just a prophet. He's not just a priest. He's not just a king. He is prophet, priest, and king. So the crowds don't get it, but, but Jesus' disciples do. And Peter steps up and he speaks for the group. He's not just, it's not just Peter saying this. What Peter says has actually been said by the other disciples previously in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter is just kind of giving the summary statement, right? He, uh, when, uh, he says, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. None of that is new revelation. If we were to turn back to Matthew 14, which is where uh, Jesus is, whoops, go back, where Jesus walks on water and he, he stills the storm. We would turn to verse 33. You'd see that all those in the boat, not just Peter, worship Jesus saying that truly you are the son of God. So the disciples knew this. They already understood this. And they've, it, he, Jesus has been referred to as the Christ previously. So what Peter is doing is just summarizing. He's just speaking for the folks, right? He's stepping up and he's saying, all right, this is, this is, uh, this is what you are. But then you have, um, then you have the, those, those, those statements, right? So the promised savior and the son of the living God. So Peter is just kind of, Summarizing it, like I said, and that erupts Jesus into what's known again as a beatitude. So uh, when when Jesus says, "Blessed are you," now it, it feels like 18 years ago we were in Matthew chapter five. Now, but if we were to turn back to Matthew chapter five, you'd you'd read again the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed the all those. So here Jesus does another beatitude, but it's specific. Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah. Now that Bar Jonah. All right, um, there's a theology that states that, that, that Peter is of the line of, like the, 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 the prophetic line of Jonah, right? The book, the dude that got eaten by a fish. And so uh, if you read the Greek, it's, it's uh, Barioni, right? But most likely it's just actually a, a compaction of, of Bar, meaning son, and Iohanan, which means son of John. Peter's dad's name was John. So uh, if you were to open like the NIV or the CSB, or uh, they would actually say um, son of John instead of Bar Jonah. I just want to mention that in case any of you have an NIV at home and you read it and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa that's different than what the pastor said. Anyway. Um, but then he says, blessed are you, so a beatitude, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed is Peter for having the truth revealed to him. Happy is another translation. Happy are you. Joyful are you. 
Jubilant are you. Why? Because, the, because God the Father has actually brought out the knowledge. He's illumined the knowledge so that Peter can, can, can say this. God's work is shedding light on truth for his people, and he's done it with Peter and the disciples here. And the, the point that I want to drive from that right now is that, that honestly, people cannot be, be forced into the faith. You can't noogie for Jesus, right? You know, say uncle, right? Because the uncle is usually the one doing the noogie. So say my name and I'll let go. You can't, you can't noogie people into Jesus. You can't force people into salvation. It has to be revealed to them like it was here. Now, for the grammatically technical ones. When we get to verse 18, we have one of the most famous word plays in the whole Bible. And this sentence, just to pause, only makes sense if Jesus said this in Greek. Oftentimes you hear like, oh, what language did Jesus speak? Oh, he, he spoke Aramaic because, because he was a Jew and, and Aramaic would have been the language that he spoke. But the problem with that theory is that the disciples are from all this different re, like regions of Israel, and the reality is that their dialects would not have been understandable to one another unless they spoke very slowly and deliberately. I had a buddy in college who was from Louisiana. Nobody knew what he said. Nobody could understand any, any sentence that came out of his mouth. He was from the deep bayou. When he said alligator, it came out like alligator. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I could understand him. And so everybody would ask me to translate what he said. He only lasted one semester. He quit. He was like, Pacific Northwest ain't for me. So, <laughs> but, but that's kind of how it is for the different regions in Israel. Also, this sentence only makes sense because in Aramaic, the word for rock is kephos. You know, when you see Peter's name in other sections of the scripture, it's Cephas. That's kephos. So I just want to make that point because there's this beautiful wordplay that only makes sense if Jesus said it in Greek. He says, you are Peter, Petros, masculine, singular, name, anarash. So it only makes sense if, if this is Greek and he says, you are Petros, the name, Ha Petros. He's saying, this is, this, is, this is him, this is Peter. And on this Petra, changing the gender of the word, indicating a change in topic, change in, change in focus, I will build my church. And he carries that I will build my church in the feminine, implying that this, this is actually a subclause. That this rock, the second rock, is not Peter. It's not Peter. It's not Peter. If you have Roman Catholic background, it's not Peter, I promise. There's a change. And on this rock, this separate rock, this other rock... Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I really, I really want to say mean things about Roman Catholic dogma. Anyway, so, so there's three basic views on the rock. 
And I'm not talking about Dwayne, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Three people know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so, <laughs> so it doesn't make sense that Peter would be the rock because grammatically there is a separation in the sentence between Petra and uh, Petros and Petra. There's also this, this one view that, uh, Abby, shh, do I need to have you sit in the back? Okay, I, I will have you sit in the back if you're going to keep doing that. Sorry. All right, so, so uh, this other view that this rock is Jesus, and this was popularized especially by John MacArthur. Uh, he's taking a, a Reformation and Augustinian view. Uh, he's not wrong, but he, he, he motions like this, right? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Meaning himself, meaning Jesus. Jesus is the rock. It's really probable, and it actually makes sense, because there's that grammatical distinction there. Or there's a third view that since, since Matthew knows that we are incapable of, of, of seeing this, this implied motion, right? Uh, there, there's this third view that's been around even longer than the Reformation, that that the that there's a grammatical change to indicate that this rock is actually the confession that Peter makes. Ultimately, Peter is not the rock. These other two explanations make sense. It's either Jesus is the rock, or the confession of who Jesus is is the rock on which Jesus builds his church. It is not Peter. There, I'll move on from now. The, or for now. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here is another really argued about sentence. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want a verbal response. Have you ever seen anyone use a gate as a weapon? Yes. How? In movies. In movies, they just knock the gate over on the, the forces? No. Oh, that's true. That's true. But a gate is typically stable. Can you imagine someone putting a gate on a wagon and pushing it into battle and just like getting over, getting over the people that, uh, that, that like they want to kill and then maybe pulling a thing and the gate falls over? But then, but then the gate's heavy. How do you get it back on a wagon? Have you ever seen that? No, you haven't, because siege weapons were usually ballistas. They were things designed to knock down the gates. The gates are stable. The gates are stationary. The gates are defensive, not offensive. So I think, and, and most scholars agree with this, at least if they're, they're in the evangelical world, like the, the world of the gospel, not the Roman Catholic or the liturgical world. Most, pace, most people read this to say that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, meaning that hell is on the defensive, not the offensive, the defensive against the advancement of the kingdom of God. And that's ultimately what we've been reading in Matthew is the advancement of the kingdom. Even though Jesus has had to retreat and be strategic and go to these Gentile regions where the Jews are not as active and not, able, not as able to do stuff, the point is that the advancement of the kingdom is on display here. That Jesus will build up his army, he will build up his church, and as, as the army advances, the defensive structures of the gates of hell shall not prevail against that advance. 
the prevail in the ESV along with the uh, along with with the New American Standard. The word prevail um, shall not prevail against it means shall not have more strength than. You ever think about that? That hell's gates do not have more strength than the advancement of God's kingdom. That no defense can thwart the advancement of God's kingdom? Do you ever live like that? Because frankly, I'm going to take a guess, knowing myself, that no, you don't live like that. Because I don't live like that. I think it's, I think it's far more often that we think that the, the gates of hell are not actually a gate. We think they're the ballistas. They're on the offense. And so therefore, we have to go on the defense. We erect our four walls around us, and we never leave it. Why? Because it's a safe space. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I can't say that anymore due to politics. Safe space is a bad word. Uh, it, it's, th this, is, this, is a, this, this is our fortress. We have to defend it. I think that's the way we live. But that's not the call. The call is not to erect your fortifications and hold the doors, hold the line. The, the call is actually to stop cowering, to advance onward, and to recognize that nothing's going to stop the advance of God's kingdom. And that's, that's the point. Jesus will build his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, verse 19. Good. Uh, I want to make sure it wasn't past the time that I hope to be. Now that I've all bored you to sleep, let's continue. Verse 19. I will give you, meaning Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the question I want to pose is, how do those keys function? Is Peter up in his gate, twirling the, twirling the jangly keys, ready to open the gate? No. No, that's not it. The example that Jesus says, he says, the, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. Now, that translation in the ESV has a little footnote underneath it. And if you were to look at the footnote that goes down, it says, or shall have been bound. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed on earth. Or, this is my trusty New American Standard Bible, one of the most wooden and awful to read versions of the Bible because it's so literal that sometimes the sentences don't make sense. Sometimes they're long, like my sermons, and they're hard to read, just like my sermons are hard to listen to. But, but uh, none of you are awake, except Dave. Anyway, the <laughs> so, so if I were to take 1 Peter... Up uh, first Peter, my bad. Matthew 16, Peter's confession, and you and I were to read verse 19. I will give you the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth should or shall have been loosed in heaven. Just like the footnote in the ESV. Well, why does it why, why is it different? Why is there a footnote? Why is why is it distinct? Why am I even making this point? Well, Good question. I'm glad I asked it. 
The, the, the translational struggle here is how do you make this sentence make sense? Because the very first statement is future intended, right? Whatever you bind on earth, it's future active, uh, more importantly, that active. Um, but the rest of the sentence goes uh, past tense, passive. And not just past tense, but a Greek case that we don't have in the English that's called the perfect past tense, passive. Passive meaning that there is no activity. There's three voices in the Greek. There's active, you're doing it. Middle, you're kind of doing it, but you're kind of being forced to do it. And then there's the passive. You're not doing it at all. It's being done for you. So... In Hellenistic Greek, there's two, there's, there's two forms of Greek. There's Hellenistic Greek and Koine Greek. Hellenistic would be more like Rome at this time. Rome and some of the more, the more Gentile regions like Athens and, and, and the other Grecian areas would use this Hellenistic Greek. And it, the, the rules of Hellenistic Greek is whatever the first verbal form is supersedes uh, following verbal forms. So if I, were to, if, if I were to give you a sentence like this, I have a daughter, her name was Abigail. You could understand that in Hellenistic Greek because you would, you would translate that in your mind to I have a daughter, her name is Abigail. You would think that it supersedes, that it's more important than. But... Thanks to dead, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1950s, and actually still ongoing, they just found one a couple years back, more Dead Sea Scrolls, we've found more examples of Koine Greek. And since Matthew has these 28 chapters of a gospel, we don't have any other place to compare this, this, this style of writing. This is the only time that Matthew switches case in the middle of a sentence and provides absolutely zero explanation for what it means. Usually Jesus adds this extra explanation, like, and what I mean by this is, but he doesn't hear. So thanks to more recent discoveries of older manuscripts, and I know that's really hard to understand, it's like, uh, it's like if you bought an antique house, right? And in that antique house, everything was made in the 1920s. And then you go up in the attic and there's some Victorian era bed frame, right? Like now, now you can look at this bed frame and know what it was like in the Victorian era, but you can't say like, oh, this bed frame was made in the 1920s, unless it's a replica, which drives me nuts. Anyway, so, so they find in the Dead Sea Scrolls examples of this. And they found that in Koine Greek, Koine actually does make that shift in the middle of a sentence if the same verb is used in a different case with a different time, different chronological purpose, then actually you have to read each one individually. But if you read older translations like the King James Version or the American Standard Version, you would find that they go with the older, uh, I can't even say older, like that's the weird part. The newer is actually the older and the older is actually the newer understanding. So it, it, would, go, it would go with this more traditional view that the second verb doesn't matter as much. But the older version of Koine Greek actually reads like this. 
I will give you the king, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound passive in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been bound passive in heaven. So what does that mean? What's the difference there? It actually affirms, it's Jesus not affirming Peter's sovereignty, but it's affirming God's sovereignty. It's confirming election, that whoever Peter chooses to preach the gospel to, whoever he chooses to try and loose with the gospel, whatever is bound by the preaching of the gospel or whatever is loosed by the preaching of the gospel, has actually already been determined, not by Peter, but by a more active agent than Peter, who is God. Now, if I were to open up Matthew Henry on this, he would disagree with me. But if I were to open Augustine in his confessions, he would agree with me. Augustine, by the way, dates back to the 300s. Augustine's older, He's, long story short. Died a lot, lot before Matthew Henry. And if you don't believe me, just read Confessions. It's like 1,200 pages of sorrow and lament of a man who did not acknowledge God and his sovereignty throughout his whole life. This is much like when you turn to Acts 13, 48, when Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And Luke records, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were as were appointed assigned or commanded to eternal life believed. God is the active agent of salvation. God is the active agent of illumination. God is the active agent before you and I ever did it. I, uh, I, uh, there's, a, there's a really famous quote by Charles Spurgeon, and I read it this morning just for fun, uh, at least the section of his, of, of his uh, pulpit um, pulpit preaching, where he said, I've, I've met many an Arminian in doctrine, but I've never met an Arminian in prayer. Nobody seems to pray about free will, but they pray for divine sovereignty. And ain't that the truth? When you pray, when you pray for the salvation of your, your nephew, your son, your niece, your uncle, you don't say, Lord, ah, please just woo them. And, and, and make them want you to the point where they could choose you. No, you say, God, save them. Especially if they're dying. If they're on their deathbed, you say, Lord, convert them. I'm powerless. I can't do it. You're right. You can't. The point is this. That whoever Peter preaches the gospel to, which by the way, that's the king, keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's the gospel. Whoever, whoever Peter preaches the gospel to, whatever he binds and he loosens has actually already been done by God from eternity past before Peter ever even did it. And he's not responsible for trying to convict or convince people. God already determined it and praise God that he did. Now, for me personally, that's hard to reconcile. I don't know about you. If, it, it, like, when I, when I came to Christ, listen to that sentence. When I came to Christ, who's the active agent in that sentence? Is it God or is it me? Me! Because that's how I perceive it. From my very veiled eyes, it's like, yeah, Jesus, I prayed for salvation. I came to him. 
And yet you turn to like Ephesians 1 or Romans 9, where God very specifically, well, Paul in those, in those cases, or Jeremiah, where God very specifically says, my work, me, my doing. And it takes the pressure off. Now, I want to point out, too, that the keys are the gospel. I said that. Uh, if you were to turn to Matthew 18, 18, uh, you find out that the rest of the disciples have the exact same power. Actually, it's put in terms of church discipline, uh, where, where uh, Jesus says um, the, the exact same thing. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, same sentence, but applied to the rest of the disciples, which again proves the point that the rock ain't Peter. It's just not. It's not Peter, okay? I know reading it in English, it sounds like, hey, on you, Peter, this rock, I will build my church. That's just wrong. It's just, it's just wrong. Anyway. Um, but it would be fun to open an inner, inner linear, like go back to the Greek with a Roman Catholic and be like, hey, I'm just thinking, like, what do you, what do you think about this? Were the words different? The gender changes? Do you know Spanish? You know, you know when, when in Spanish, like the gender of a word changes and it means that there's something else, kind of like this. <laughs> anyway, um, so a couple, uh, uh, well, the fi final point that I'm going to make is, is that unbound command in verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's not for you. That's how I'm going to summarize that. That ain't for you. That was, a, that, that, was an un, that, that, that was a command that only existed until Jesus uh, ascended to heaven. And, and then he says, go, tell them. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That last verse is not a command to you. Don't pretend like it is. All right. Some implications. I've mentioned them all. Implication number one, many people think they know who Jesus is, but being close is no substitute for being correct. A couple years ago, there was a, a, a thing by Ligonier Ministries made called the Ligonier Statement on Christology. It's not that long, uh, but it was, it was birthed out of this really bad theology of Jesus that, that the American church, by survey result, in the South uh, specifically, and in Illinois, I got to participate in it, but, they, but the Ligonier Statement on Christology um, is, is a great summary of who Jesus is, of what he accomplished. So who do you say Jesus is? Is, is he just a prophet? Is he a healer? Is he a cosmic gumball machine that if you put in the right amount of faith dollars, he might actually get you to do what you want to do and, uh, and he'll spit out that gumball and you just hope that it doesn't get stuck on the way down? Because that, that matters. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Because only a true profession of faith that he is the promised savior divinely intended to come as a final sacrifice for sin to propitiate his and his father's wrath against sinners, fully divine, fully man, the son of God come in the flesh. 
Only that, only that well-orbed, really quickly stated sentence will do. A confession of Jesus in his full humanity and full divinity. If you don't know or confess all those God-given tr given truths, especially that he came to propitiate his and his father's wrath, the father is not the only angry party in the Trinity. If you don't profess that he is the propitiation for that wrath, meaning he's come to satisfy that anger, or that he's part man and part God instead of fully man and fully God. If you don't know that full-orbed understanding of who Jesus is, then repent. Turn to Christ. Ask him to reveal these things to you. Dive into his word. Be unbound and loosed from the shackles of sin and death. And know the actual true love of Jesus Christ the Savior. It's on that confession that, that Jesus builds his church. So the first, the first response that you need to have is, is know who Jesus is. Say, say who he is properly. Second, don't cower as if hell is on the offense. God's kingdom is on the offense. It, it is. Whether, whether you like it or not, a gate is not an offensive structure. The advancement of the kingdom happens. And if it's not happening, it's not God's fault, it's not Satan's fault, it's our fault. We bear that responsibility because like cowards, we, we hide, we don't preach the gospel, we don't love our neighbor, we don't do the things that Jesus tells us to do. We don't go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Which, by the way, is in that middle voice. Remember the one where you're active, but you're not really active, but you're kind of being made to do it? could be translated as you're going, make disciples of all nations. The only lie that causes us to cower, and Satan is the father of lies, is the lie that the church can fall to Satan's hand. That's a lie. It's a lie. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't say, I'm with you to the end of the age. If Jesus wants a church or his church global to live, to grow, it's by his hand and it cannot be hindered by any, any flesh and blood attempt. Therefore, do not cower as if hell is on the offense and winning because it won't. And the third and final one, whatever we see bound or loosed was already determined by God. Experience the freedom of knowing that when you give the gospel to someone, their response does not depend on your marketing tactics. You don't have to say it just the right way. That's really freeing because when I, when, oh my goodness, I was telling this, uh, this homeless dude the gospel just like a, a week ago. He was uh, hanging out um, on Main Street and he was kind of hanging out across from the Aquina Bay Motel and I just happened to be there like walking through and um, and praying for the praying for Toledo and I saw this homeless dude and boy did I botch the gospel not even gonna not even gonna give you the recap just know that I missed something that I should have said and I knew I should have said it but because I was afraid of how this guy would respond when I said it I was just like well I'm gonna be praying for you have a nice day 
dude was sober. Dude wasn't even like, anyway, I, 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 I missed my opportunity, but you know what? His response doesn't depend on me. If he recoiled from the gospel, which he did, then it's not on me. Maybe, maybe at another point, he will come to know the Lord. Maybe at another point, may, uh, he'll remember what I said or think rightly of what I said. But it's not up to me. I don't have to have the clever marketing technique in order to make them say Jesus. Because another form of cowardice is feeling like you hit a brick wall in evangelism and therefore you're never going to do it again. It's cowardly. Therefore, consider yourself strictly charged to not do verse 20, <laughs> but to go to tell people about Jesus. If they reject you, Matthew 10, 14, shake the dust from your feet and just move on. Paul says it well in Romans 10, 14 to 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, of whom they have never heard? And how, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, who proclaim the good news. Do you want beautiful feet or ugly feet? I'll take that. <laughs> Preach the good news. Let's pray. Lord, I, I know this is a difficult passage, and I know that there's a lot to swallow. I know that I've been swallowing it all week, and I don't feel like I've even swallowed a portion of it. But to know, Lord, that it's our confession of you, it's our confession of you as, as the Christ, the Son of the living God that builds your church God, make us a church that stands firm in the conviction that there is nothing, nothing, not a single thing that can stop the advancement of your kingdom here in Toledo unless you've seen fit to end it here. God, let us be a church that celebrates your kingdom, who delights in you, and who praises you like Peter as the spokesman did for the disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know none of you wanted to come today and hear about the, uh, the aorist future tense and the perfect passive, passive, or perfect past passive tense, but you did. And I hope you were benefited by it. I come here week by week intending to preach the Bible and just the Bible. I'm not trying to use any clever words of wisdom other than what God has said. And sometimes it's boring, but it's always good for our souls. So go in peace, saints.